welcome. Uh, this is the podcast on the veins of the head and neck, the CSF dynamics and the venous sinuses and emissary veins. Now it seems appropriate to commence with the basic anatomy of the internal jugular vein. The typical exam trick question is what runs through the posterior compartment of the jugular foramen. And the point here is that the internal jugular vein actually forms just below the skull base by the fusion of the inferior petrosal and sigmoid sinuses. Initially behind the internal carotid artery, the IJV lies on the lateral mass of the atlas and is crossed by the spinal accessory nerve. Its posterior relations include the cervical plexus lying on the levator scapulae and the scalenus medius and the phrenic nerve on the scalenus anterior. We've already discussed these in another podcast on the scalene musculature. The thoracic duct crosses behind the left vein at the level of the C7 vertebra. And the vein then descends vertically in the neck, applied usually to the lateral or perhaps the more superficial side of the internal carotid artery and then the common carotid artery enclosed with them and the vagus nerve in the carotid sheath which we've also discussed in an earlier podcast on the fascia of the head and neck. The IJV joins the subclavian vein behind the sternoclavicular joint to form the brachiocephalic vein. On the right hand side the right common carotid artery tends to recede a little away from the right IJV, whereas it's more intimately associated on the left. And in the jugular fossa, the upper end of the vein dilates to form a superior bulb, which is usually with a two or three cusp valve at that particular point near the base of the skull. But typically the right IJV is larger than the left as it tends to drain blood from the superior sagittal sinus. And if one examines the grooves uh, inside the skull for the transverse and the sigmoid sinuses on a dried skull, that's usually evident, as they too are bigger in their impressions. And all of these parts of the skull are related. The jugular foramen, the hypoglossal canal, the occipital condyle, the styloid process, the stylomastoid foramen. We've considered all of this in the Osteology of the Skull podcast. The area of the carotid canal and the petrous temporal bone lies slightly forward of that region. And understanding that arrangement provides a conceptual idea of the relationships of the structures at the base of the skull. At this level, the IJV lies posterolateral to the internal carotid artery with the last four cranial nerves 9, 10, 11 and 12 intervening. And below this, the structures that are in contact with the IJV are those that contact the internal carotid artery above and the common carotid artery below, except that both arteries separate the internal jugular vein from those medial structures and the nerves crossing the internal carotid artery are medial to the vein. And these, as we know, are the things that Uh, include the glossopharyngeal nerve, the pharyngeal branch of the vagus, the hypoglossal nerve, and I guess also the superior root of the ansa cervicalis. 
the inferior root and superior root join at a variable level in front of the vein. Uh, the superior root is really derived from the hypoglossal nerve. The spinal accessory tends to run anterior to the upper part of the IJV, and the inferior root of the ansa cervicalis can be either lateral or medial to the lower IJV. The vein, of course, is lateral to the arteries, and as a consequence, the internal jugular vein is anterior to the roots of the cervical plexus and, of course, to the other prevertebral musculature, the scalenus anterior and its phrenic nerve running on the surface from lateral to medial. The IJV is also lateral to the vertebral artery. We don't usually think of it in that context, but that's obviously true. And the terminal IJV lies between the sternal and clavicular heads of the sternocleidomastoid. Now, veins don't have branches, so try not to say that in the exams. They have tributaries, and they are the inferior petrosal sinus, the pharyngeal plexus, which usually drains into the upper IJV by a couple of stout veins, the facial, lingual and superior thyroid veins, and they enter the IJV at the carotid triangle level, usually at the level of the greater horn or the tip of the greater horn of the hyoid bone. The middle thyroid vein, which is a constant really, which needs to be ligated so that you can expose the thyroid lobe. And occasionally there's a jugular lymphatic trunk that can enter at the root of the neck and that may be important in chylus leaks. So those are all the venous tributaries of the IJV. Somebody might ask you that, and that's the answer to it. The inferior petrosal, the pharyngeal plexus, facial, lingual and superior thyroid veins, a middle thyroid vein. Now, the surface marking of the IJV joins the lobule of the ear to the sternal end of the clavicle. The jugular venous pulse that we see uh, reflects the right atrial pressure with its A or atrial contraction wave, its C or ventricular contraction wave, and its V or venous filling waves. So we remember that the ACV waves of the jugular pulse. And the vein is approached five centimetres above the clavicle at the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid, is directed towards the jugular notch, or more commonly two centimetres above the clavicle between the sternocleidomastoid heads in a slightly backward and lateral direction of entry. Those are the percutaneous entry to the IJV. In a broad overview, the majority of veins of the cerebral hemispheres lie on the surface in the subarachnoid space, and they drain into the venous sinuses by crossing the subarachnoid and subdural spaces and by piercing the arachnoid uh, mater and the dura mater. The superior cerebral vein, for example, converges on the superior sagittal sinus, anteriorly and posteriorly, with most of the inferior cerebral veins converging on the middle cerebral vein and with those from the occipital lobe passing inferiorly into the transverse sinus. There's a superficial middle cerebral vein which runs anteriorly between the lips of the posterior ramus of the lateral sulcus and which runs medially in the cavernous sinus. Posteriorly, it's not uncommon for the superficial middle cerebral vein to be connected to the sagittal sinus via a wide superior anastomotic vein, which can have relevance 
if there is uh, cavernous sinus thrombosis. And that anastomotic vein can also connect with veins in the interior and base of the cerebral hemisphere by so-called connecting perforating veins. The veins of the inferior part of the hemisphere drain in a number of directions. They can drain anteriorly to the anterior and superficial middle cerebral vein, posteriorly to the basal vein, or directly to the superior petrosal or straight and transverse sinuses. The veins of the medial surface of the cerebral hemisphere are best seen when the cerebral hemispheres are separated, but the main vein on the medial surface is the great cerebral vein, which emerges from the posterior part of the splenium of the corpus callosum, and it joins the inferior sagittal sinus to form the straight sinus. The great cerebral vein is joined by a number of symmetrical tributaries from the midbrain and inferiorly from the cerebellum and via a basal vein which curves around the midbrain. And each basal vein is formed in the medial part of the stem of the lateral sulcus by a confluence of firstly the anterior cerebral vein which runs with its corresponding artery, the deep middle cerebral vein which distinguishes it from the superficial middle cerebral vein and the deep one lies in the depths of the lateral sulcus on the insula and a striate vein or sometimes striate veins which emerge via the anterior perforated substance. The veins of the brain stem and the cerebellum drain largely posteriorly to reach the basal and the great cerebral veins and nearby venous sinuses and the veins of the medulla oblongata communicate with the veins of the spinal medulla. Now, in general, the cerebral venous return doesn't actually follow the arterial pattern. The arteries travel deep in the sulci, whereas the cortical veins tend to travel relatively superficially in the arachnoid mater, which allows them really effectively to remain open. The veins drain into the nearby dural sinuses, but they can adopt a pattern that resembles the arteries if they are near the anterior part of the hemisphere or near the brain base. Superlaterally, the surface of the hemisphere drains directly really into the superior sagittal sinus via the superior cerebral veins above and into the transverse sinus below with a vein that enters against the direction of blood flow. The superficial middle cerebral vein, uh, to reiterate, really drains the adjacent cortex of the lateral sulcus and empties into the cavernous sinus. The posterior part has the superior and inferior anastomotic veins which respectively join the superior sagittal and transverse sinuses. So I'm just going over this again. And the reason for this is that the insula and the depth of the lateral sulcus lie really too far from any given sinus and it necessitates a special anastomotic or bridging vein at this level. And at this point, there's also a requirement for a deep middle cerebral vein to join the basal vein. So it's kind of, I'm just trying to um, set up the basic setup of the uh, system. The medial and inferior surfaces of the hemispheres drain via, as I've said before, the inferior cerebral veins into the nearest sinus. That's usually the superior sagittal, and the inferior sagittal and the straight sinuses, except anteriorly where there's no real sinus collecting there. Rather, 
um, this comes into an anterior cerebral vein, which returns blood from the genu of the corpus callosum along with the anterior cerebral artery to the basal vein. And that anterior cerebral vein also drains the orbital surface of the frontal lobe. It's actually the only vein that is named in honour of its accompanying artery because it's not normally the architecture of the veins. The striate veins emerge, as I've said, through the anterior perforated substance and they drain the lower corpus striatum and joining the deep middle cerebral vein and the anterior cerebral vein together. And these three sources then form the basal vein, which passes around the cerebral peduncle below the optic tract and the anterior choroidal artery. So that's actually very near the trochlear nerve and the posterior cerebral artery. And this um, particular vein, the basal vein, receives veins from the thalamus and the posterior perforated substance, where below the splenium of the corpus callosum, the two basal veins join the great cerebral vein, uh, which we've briefly discussed before. And this area drains the lower parts of the basal ganglia, and the upper part drains into the internal cerebral vein. So briefly, um, this internal cerebral vein receives blood from three sources. There's a choroidal vein which drains the choroid plexus of the lateral ventricle at the level of the interventricular foramen. There are is a so-called thalamostriate vein between the thalamus and the caudate nucleus. And there are the veins of the septum pellucidum, which drain the corpus callosum and the head of the caudate nucleus. So this is getting a little bit technical for those interested in the drainage of the cerebral hemispheres and the deep uh, structures of the basal ganglia. This ICV, this internal cerebral vein, actually runs backwards receiving the tiny veins of the choroid plexus of the third ventricle, joining its opposite side to form the great cerebral vein, sometimes called the vein of Galen, just beneath the splenium, which is then joined, as I've said before, by the two basal veins. And with the inferior sagittal sinus, it enters directly into the straight sinus. And this area uh, will be covered in greater detail in a neuroanatomy session, but I I think it's a reasonable idea to briefly understand the basic layout. Uh, and it's, of course, a nice segue into the next area, which is the anatomy of the venous sinuses. But so for some reason, I always find this area difficult to kind of uh, picture. I think because they're small spaces between the endosteal and, uh, uh, or periosteal and uh, meningeal dura, they're hard to understand and remember. So we're going to talk now about the anatomy of the venous sinuses. Now we need to understand a little bit about the basic structure of these sinuses and I shall follow this with a short discussion explaining the movement and the dynamics of the CSF. And I mention these things because they're not uncommonly glossed over in standard anatomy teaching. We want to take a little bit of a deeper dive. The entire CNS, that's the brain and spinal medulla, is enclosed in three membranes or meninges, uh, which we all know, the dura mater, the arachnoid and the pia mater, which are separated from one another by the subdural and the subarachnoid spaces. The unique features of the venous sinuses pertains in particular to the unique characteristics of the dura mater at this point. The outermost meninx fuses with the skull endocranium 
except where it forms a rigid fold or a partition between the major parts of the brain and where it forms brain supports and where the venous sinuses form. Now, equally, the dura um, mater encloses the spinal medulla as a tubular sheath which runs from the foramen magnum to the sacrum and which is separated from the periosteum of the spinal canal by a layer containing the internal vertebral venous plexus, which is homologous to the cranial venous sinuses and which are the subject of a, of a, a much later podcast. Um, you're going to have to run, I think, the whole series to hear that last podcast. Anyway, these are continuous throughout the foramen magnum with the dura fuses with the endocranium. The subdural space is therefore only absent where the structures pierce the dura mater or where the arachnoid villi are present. So the meningeal vessels are in the endocranium, that is, they are extradural, whereas the cerebral vessels lie in the subarachnoid space. So that's obviously quite a big difference. Um, now, all of the venous sinuses, except for the inferior sagittal sinus and the straight sinus, lie between the inner and the outer layers of the dura mater. That is, that one of the layers is endosteal, whereas the two layers of these are formed sinuses that I've mentioned, the inferior sagittal and the straight sinus, are entirely meningeal. So these venous sinuses receive all the blood from the brain and the adjacent bone uh, when they are so near. The important communications with veins outside the skull, the emissary veins, I'm going to consider a little later in this podcast because they're often not covered particularly well either. The whole point is that the sinuses are held permanently open by the unyielding endosteal dura and the blood siphons, really, to the IJV. The sinuses do not contain any valves, and that's important. It allows them to have blood flow uh, in either direction. So let's talk about some of these uh, particular sinuses in a bit more detail. The superior sagittal sinus, and that runs from the territory of the foramen cecum to the internal occipital protuberance, grooving the midline skull. This has three to four lakes of blood which house the arachnoid granulations, which also create individual skull impressions or indentations on the calvarium. The superior sinus does not drain the frontal pole of the hemisphere, but receives veins from the upper and posterior parts of both the medial and lateral hemisphere surfaces. The superior cerebral vein enters the sinus against the flow. Generally, the superior sagittal sinus turns to the right, becoming the transverse or so-called lateral sinus. The falx cerebri is a sickle-shaped fold of dura mater descending between the two cerebral hemispheres anteriorly attached to the cristagalli and posteriorly increasing in breadth and becoming continuous with the upper part of the tentorium cerebelli, separating off the cerebellum. The lower border of the falx overhangs the corpus callosum, with the inferior sagittal sinus in the free margin and the straight sinus in the section which attaches to the tentorium cerebelli. The inferior sagittal sinus drains the lower parts of the medial surface 
of each hemisphere. The lateral lacunae are cleft-like lateral extensions in the space with the largest overlying the motor cortex and with many arachnoid granulations uh, entering the lateral lacunae. These lacunae increase in size with age, with the superior cerebral vein passing inferior to the lacunae to get to the sinus and with the meningeal and diploic veins directly entering the lacunae. Now that's really all in a sense one needs to know um, about the superior sagittal sinus and the inferior sagittal sinus I guess as well. Now what about the straight sinus? The straight sinus receives the inferior sagittal sinus anteriorly along with the right and left basal cerebral veins and the great cerebral vein, the union of the great cerebral vein and the inferior sagittal sinus. And it also receives the veins from the adjacent occipital lobes and the upper cerebellar surface. The straight sinus generally turns into the left transverse sinus at a high slope. The transverse sinus commences at the internal occipital protuberance and runs laterally between the two layers of the tentorium cerebelli, grooving the occipital bone and the mastoid angle of the parietal bone, curving downwards at the junction of the petrous and mastoid parts of the temporal bone, and becomes the sigmoid sinus as a deep groove of the mastoid. Now, one sinus is larger than the other, namely that which receives the superior sagittal sinus, and that's usually the right transverse sinus. And in some books, the transverse and sigmoid sinuses are often collectively called the lateral sinus. There's communication at the internal occipital protuberance of the sinuses, the confluence, the two transverse, superior sagittal and straight, which is also called the torcula herophili, T-O-R-C-U-L-A receiving tributaries from the nearby cerebral and cerebellar surfaces. At the termination, the commencement of the sigmoid sinus, it receives the superior petrosal sinus. The surface marking of the transverse sinus is quite low, running between the external occipital protuberance and the top of the mastoid at the superior nuchal line where the neck muscles join the skull. There's also communication via parietal foramina and emissary veins with veins in the scalp. The largest tributaries of the inferior sagittal sinus are the anterior pericolosal veins. That's fairly small print. The inferior sagittal sinus runs only the posterior two-thirds or so of the falx. Usually, as I've said, the right transverse sinus, the right sigmoid sinus, the right jugular vein contain blood from the superficial parts of the brain and the left transverse sinus, the left sigmoid sinus and the left internal jugular vein contain blood mainly from the deep parts of the vein drained by the internal cerebral, basal and great veins. Now the next area is then the tentorial sinuses. These sinuses divide into the medial and lateral groups. The medial group drains into the transverse sinuses. The lateral group drains into both the straight and transverse sinuses. The sigmoid sinus. 
This curves downwards and then forwards to the posterior limit of the jugular foramen. Have a look at a dried skull internally there um, in the uh, posterior cranial fossa. Um, so that it's forming the posterior limit of the jugular foramen, occupying the posterior compartment as the jugular bulb, and where it connects with the mastoid emissary vein, joining the posterior auricular vein high up and inferiorly by a vein passing through the posterior condylar foramen, if that's present, which then joins the suboccipital venous plexus. The sigmoid sinus takes in the superior petrosal, uh, sinus at its upper end and the occipital sinus lower down and cerebellar veins drain into it as do veins from the mastoid air cells so mastoid infections can lead can lead certainly to cerebellar abscesses and here it's also close to the vertical part of the facial nerve the sigmoid sinus receives the posterior temporal diploic vein the occipital veins uh, which include a mastoid emissary vein, as I've described, the suboccipital venous plexus, which will drain via the condylar emissary vein when present in the condylar canal, and the beginning of the transverse sinus via the occipital sinus. Now, what are the occipital sinuses? The occipital sinus runs down from the beginning of the transverse sinus to the foramen magnum, and it drains into the lower part of the sigmoid sinus. Now, um, these two sinuses, when present, lie along the attachment of the falx cerebelli and can fuse into one trunk and around the margins of the foramen magnum. The veins communicate with the veins outside the spinal dura, which are the internal ver vertebral venous plexus. And they'll receive the cerebellar and medullary tributaries and also drain the choroid plexus of the fourth ventricle. The basilar sinuses are a network of veins lying between the two layers of dura on the clivus, connecting the two inferior petrosal sinuses and receiving blood from the lower pons and the front of the medulla. Thrombosis of this part of the system is fatal. Now note that no veins accompany the vertebral and basilar arteries. The vertebral vein commencing outside the skull, it's described in an earlier podcast, actually AHN3. And this communicates with the internal vertebral venous plexus via the foramen magnum. The superior petrosal sinus is a narrow sinus which drains the posterior end of the cavernous sinus to the junction of the transverse and sigmoid sinuses and it lies in the margin of the tentorium fixed to the petrous temporal bone. And these venous sinuses are small channels that drain the cavernous sinus. They run from the posterior end of the cavernous sinus to the transverse sinus and both of the petrosal sinuses lie in the attached margins of the tentorium cerebelli. The superficial sylvian veins, as they're called, may empty into an infrequent tributary of the superior petrosal sinus called the sphenopetrosal sinus. That's pretty small print. Veins of the lateral hemispheric convexities drain into three major roots. These are into a sphenoparietal sinus, the so-called sylvian vein, the superior sagittal sinus, 
um, and inferiorly, these veins drain into the transverse sinus, and the largest one is called the vein of Labay. The veins draining into the superior sagittal sinus from the superior petrosal are called the uh, veins of Trollard, T-R-O-L-A-R-D, and this is also of small print. The inferior petrosal sinus lies in the groove between the basilar occiput and the petrous temporal. And that's an important sinus because it drains the posterior part of the cavernous sinus through into the back of the jugular foramen. And that's the sinus that joins the jugular bulb to form the IJV just below the jugular foramen, below the skull. As I've said, an old uh, trick that the internal jugular vein forms below the skull base, not coming out of the jugular foramen. Diploic veins are wide venous spaces of the marrow cavities between the outer and the inner tables of the flat bones of the skull, and these communicate with the venous sinuses and occasionally with emissary veins. Meningeal veins also are there, the small venous channels that drain the dura mater covering the cerebrum. They're called the meningeal veins, and they're small sinuses that usually accompany the meningeal arteries. These drain into the adjacent named sinuses and lacunae, and the largest accompanies the middle meningeal artery. So in summary, the venous sinuses are endothelially lined spaces in the folds of dura, or between the dura and the endocranium. They communicate with the internal vertebral venous plexus surrounding the spinal dura, and they drain neural tissue and bone. And these are valveless, so that blood can flow in either direction according to pressure gradients, and they drain into the IJV, but they also drain via meningeal, diploic, and emissary veins. There's a little redundancy in this system. They also drain, the, of course, the CSF directly from the arachnoid villi and granulations in the superior sagittal sinus and its lateral lacunae. So they've got a kind of multifunction as well. In summary, again, I tend to reiterate a little bit that the veins of the brain have no muscular tissue in their thin walls and possess no valves. They emerge from the brain and they lie in the subarachnoid space. They pierce the arachnoid mater and the meningeal layer of the dura and they drain into the cranial venous sinuses. The cerebral venous system can be divided effectively, as we've said before, into a superficial and a deep system. The superficial system comprises sagittal sinuses and cortical veins, which drain the superficial surfaces of both cerebral hemispheres. The deep system consists of the lateral sinus, the straight sinus, and the sigmoid sinus, along with draining deeper cortical veins. Both of these systems mainly drain into the internal jugular vein. Generally, venous blood drains into the nearest venous sinus, or in the case of blood draining from the deeper structures, into some of these deep veins that I've mentioned. The superficial cerebral veins are interlinked with the mastomotic veins, as we've said before, of Trollard and Labay. And thus the supralateral surface of the hemisphere drains into the superior sagittal sinus, whilst the postero-inferior aspect drains into the transverse sinus. The veins of the posterior fossa are variable in course, 
of angiographic diagnosis of their occlusion is actually difficult. The entire deep venous system is drained by internal cerebral and basal veins, which join to form the great vein of Galen that drains, as we've said before, directly into the straight sinus. And there may be quite a deal of variation in the anatomy of the superficial venous system, but the deep venous system uh, is often rather static. It's a neuroanatomical landmark. Superficial venous system uh, a group drains the cortical surfaces, as we've said. The deep group drains the deep white and grey matter and collects into channels that course through the walls of the ventricles and basal cisterns to drain into the internal cerebral, basal and great veins. So the cerebral venous system, another way of looking at it, we're just talking about different ways of looking at these things, can be divided into five parts. There's a sort of superficial supratentorial cortical venous system, there are dural sinuses and veins, there are meningeal veins, there are deep veins, there are posterior fossa veins. So this is this cotton five-part separation. The superficial supratentorial cortical veins, these superficial veins lie on the surface of the cerebral cortex. They drain mainly into the basal vein, so-called basal vein of Rosenthal, and they're considered part of the deep drainage system. Superfi at the end, superficial veins drain mainly into four major veins or groups of bridging veins the superior sagittal sinus that receives the superior sagittal group, the sphenoparietal sinus and cavernous sinus that receives the sphenoidal group, which less commonly drains into a sphenobasal or sphenopetrosal sinus, as I've said, that's small print. The inferior sagittal sinus and the great vein of Galen that receive the falcine group, which empty into the inferior sagittal sinus or the straight sinus, and that group drains the limbic system, the anterior cingulate gyrus and the corpus callosum are drained by so-called anterior pericolosal veins, posterior corpus callosum by the posterior pericolosal and anterior hippocampal or uncle veins. The tributaries of the sinuses related to the tentorium cerebelli that receive the tentorial group include bridging veins that enter the superior petrosal sinus and the transverse sinus. And that group actually includes, as I've said before, the temporobasal and occipitobasal veins and descending veins, including the vein of Lab A. The vein of Lab A, which courses from the superficial middle cerebral vein and which usually enters the transverse sinus. Um, I may post some pictures regarding uh, this on the uh, Facebook site. Now, the deep veins are concerned with the drainage, as I've said before, of the central structures of the hemispheres, the basal ganglia, the corpus callosum, the pineal region of the limbic system, and the thalamus. And during operations on the lateral ventricles, the deep veins most commonly provide orientating landmarks, more so perhaps uh, than the arteries. The deep veins are divided into a ventricular group composed of the veins draining the walls of the lateral ventricles, and a cisternal group, which includes the veins draining the walls of the basal cisterns. The deep venous system, as we've said, consists of the internal cerebral vein, the basal vein, so-called basal vein of Rosenthal, and their tributaries. 
Now, if we're looking at this in a little bit more detail, we've got the ventricular group and the cisternal group, and then from there, we've got the posterior fossa veins. These are just other ways of looking at it. In the ventricular group, this group is separated. There's a common atrial vein connecting to the internal cerebral vein or the vein of Galen, draining the caudate nucleus and the thalamus, and these are the anterior caudate and thalamostriate uh, veins. And then the, the medial ventricular group, which drains into the basal vein. There's an anterior septal vein, which drains the deep frontal lobe. The medial veins are the lateral ventricle, the posterior septal veins, and the lateral group includes the thalamostriate, thalamocordate, and posterior caudate veins. The thalamostriate vein drains the posterior frontal and anterior parietal lobes, the caudate nucleus and the internal capsule, and these veins are the most frequently seen on angiography. The venous angle where the thalamostriate vein joins the internal cerebral vein is the approximate point of the foramen of Munro. In the cisternal group, these drain deep structures in front of the third ventricle, but they extend out into the sylvian fissure. They include the walls of the chiasmatic interpeduncular, crural, ambient, quadrigeminal cisterns. They're draining all the cistern regions. And there's some division as the anterior incisural is in front of the brainstem, the middle incisural is lateral to the brainstem, the posterior incisural is behind the brainstem. And the major uh, veins of this group are the basal veins and the great vein, which we've already mentioned. Choroidal veins drain deeply, and they run medial to the thalamostriate veins. Thalamic veins that are here divide into superior, anterior and inferior branches, with the superior draining into the vein of Galen, the anterior thalamic veins draining directly into the thalamostriate vein, and the inferior veins draining directly into the thalamus. The internal cerebral veins, which we've already mentioned, are paired and they run in the roof of the third ventricle, enclosed between the two layers of the telocoroidea. That's the cistern of the vellum interposition. And these drain into the great cerebral vein. The great cerebral vein receives tributaries from the basal vein and the inferior sagittal sinus and drains into the straight sinus. And it's formed by the union of two internal cerebral veins coursing beneath the splenium of the corpus callosum to end at the tentorial apex by uniting with the inferior sagittal sinus to form the straight sinus. Sort of that's definitive. Now, of the posterior fossa veins, there are three drainage systems that have been described. There's a galenic group, actually. These are precentral, superior vermian, anterior, posterior, so-called mesencephalic veins. I don't want to elaborate. This is very specific in small print. There's a petrosal group which drains into the posterior fossa veins, and they drain via petrosal veins into the superior petrosal sinus just below the trigeminal nerve. And there's a tentorial group, the so-called inferior vermian veins, and they drain into tentorial sinuses, which we briefly mentioned before. Now, the other area that we've left, or we haven't considered, let's put it that way, is the cavernous sinus. It's obviously got very great anatomical and clinical um, significance. So we'll spend a little time talking about... Um, 
vantage, so-called entry and uh, exit points, and then some aspects related to, I think, emissary veins. Uh, then we'll talk about the vertebral venous plexi and a little bit about CSF dynamics. So there's a bit of a way to go. We'll have a little bit of a um, interlude of uh, music and pick up after a minute or two.
welcome back. <clears throat> and that was um, a little interlude by Kachaturian, the masquerade suite of 1941. Now I want to talk a little bit about the cavernous sinus um, and its clinical importance and relation to anatomy. Its principal importance <coughs> is the proximity to structures which can be involved in infections and or thrombosis, sometimes even carotico-cavernous fistula. But this is really <coughs> the clinical significance of important anatomy. Everything's crowded together here. The sinus extends from the medial aspect of the superior orbital fissure towards the apex of the petrous temporal. And it lies alongside the body of the sphenoid. It's actually a series of venous channels which are incompletely fused or separated. And medially is the pituitary with the sphenoid sinus inframedially. Laterally is Meckel's cave with the trigeminal ganglion along with V2 and V1, as well as the third and fourth cranial nerves in the lateral wall of the sinus lying superiorly. And within the sinus, although separated from it by endothelium, is the internal carotid artery and also the abducent nerve. Now, in summary, each cavernous sinus contains the internal carotid artery and some cranial nerves, and each receives blood from three sources, the orbit, the vault bones, and the cerebral hemisphere. And there are entry and exit veins, and one can think of this a little like we did with the pterygopalatine fossa as having entry and exit doors. Each cavernous sinus drains via three exiting venous channels, the superior and the inferior petrosal sinuses, and a small connecting or emissary vein to the pterygoid plexus. The two sinuses communicate also via an intercavernous sinus connection. Now, because of its key position, the cavernous sinus acts as a topographical landmark. The sinus lies between the periosteum of the body of the sphenoid and a fold of inner dura mater. Medially, one may conceive of it as the roof of the sinus, such that the side of the pituitary fossa and the diaphragma cellae meet. And that roof, as I've so defined it, attaches to the anterior and the middle clinoid processes. We remember that from our osteology podcast. And it's perforated anteriorly, by an emerging internal carotid artery and is laterally a dural ridge where the tentorium cerebelli extends as far as the anterior clinoid process. The roof of the cavernous sinus is invaginated medially by the oculomotor nerve and also by the trochlear nerve. The dura extends in its attachment posterior medially to the posterior clinoid processes continuing medially as the so-called diaphragma cellae, which is just a dural roof. The lateral wall of the sinus extends onto the floor of the middle cranial fossa. Anteriorly, past the anterior clinoid processes, the dura extends to the free edge of the lesser wing of the sphenoid. And in the lateral wall of the sinus, literally between the dura and the endothelium, lies the oculomotor and trochlear nerves, and also the ophthalmic and maxillary divisions of the trigeminal nerve. The dura continues laterally and forward and fuses with the dura of the greater wing of the sphenoid at the lateral margin of the foramen rotundum. 
and the floor is strictly uh, an area, really, of a narrow strip of endosteum along the base of the greater wing of the sphenoid. The medial wall is the endosteum of the body of the sphenoid, and the dura separates the sinus from the pituitary fossa. There's a very narrow posterior wall extending down to the foramen ovale on the floor of the third uh, of the middle cranial fossa, and the anterior wall is narrow and is plugged at the medial uh, superior orbital fissure via or by the superior ophthalmic vein. So, in effect, the cavernous sinus extends from the apex of the orbit to the apex of the petrous temporal bone. Uh, and it's rather pointed, if you like, at both ends, with a spindle-shaped slit that represents the sinus, a little like a, a flower bud, if you like, lying on its side. The total capacity of this very vital area is only about 1.5 mil. And unlike any of the other venous sinuses elsewhere, the cavernous sinus is intersected by numerous septi, which creates a series of really small caves. It's a bit like a corpora cavernosum, hence the name. And um, note the similarity, if you like, with the uh, condition, the cavernominous malformation of the portal vein, which can sometimes occur in infants. So it's a kind of septate structure. And this gives it its name. Again, to reiterate, medially is the um, uh, sphenoid bone and the fibrous lateral wall of the pituitary fossa. The relationship with the sphenoid sinus carries uh, 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 a little, uh, as the sinus uh, typically extends or expands slightly posteriorly with age. And laterally to the sinus is the temporal lobe of the cerebral hemisphere and the trigeminal ganglion, a little sort of posterolaterally in the middle cranial fossa. Superiorly in the roof is the internal carotid artery, and posteriorly at a higher level is the uncus of the temporal lobe, which is not really in direct contact. And inferiorly is, of course, the greater wing of the sphenoid. Posteriorly is the cerebral peduncle at the upper pons. And anteriorly, of course, is the apex of the orbit. Now, there are contents of the cavernous sinus, structures lying within the cavity of the internal carotid artery and the accessory nerve. And the structures embedded, as I've said, within the lateral wall are the ocular motor nerve, the trochlear nerve, V1 and V2. Now at this level, the internal carotid artery is curving upwards from the foramen lacerum to enter the posterior part of the cavernous sinus, grooving the medial sinus wall and curving upwards to pierce the roof just medial to the anterior clinoid process and behind the optic canal. And then it turns at a right angle to the root of the lesser wing of the sphenoid, turning again sharply upwards and backwards, piercing the roof, that's the dura and the arachnoid of the sinus. And from here it divides into the anterior and middle cerebral arteries on the surface of the brain. It also has its plexus of sympathetics here, the internal carotid nerve, if you want to call it such, which is derived largely from the superior cervical ganglion. And this plexus gives off branches which run forward into the orbit. These pass with the long ciliary nerves, if you remember, via the nasociliary nerve to the dilator pupillae, as well as a sympathetic route to the ciliary ganglion, which passes through but doesn't synapse there, and a branch to the ocular motor nerve for the smooth muscle 
of the Lobato palpebri superioris. We have considered this a little bit in the podcast on the autonomic nerve uh, ganglia or the autonomic ganglia of the head and neck. The internal carotid artery has particular branches, which we can discuss here, although they're discussed in more detail on the podcast uh, on the orbit, which is, uh, I think, uh, coming up shortly. The ophthalmic artery passes forwards just above the roof of the sinus, and there are small twigs to the pituitary, the trigeminal ganglion, and the sinus dura. The posterior communicating, the anterior choroidal artery, the middle and anterior cerebral artery arise here at the base of the brain, and we've considered those a little in the circle of Willis discussion in the previous podcast. Also at this level, the abducent nerve, 6, enters the back of the sinus by running over the apex of the petrous temporal bone and then running just lateral to the internal carotid artery, passing below the artery as it turns upwards. Uh, and if, that is the sixth nerve, then enters the superior orbital fissure medially in an extraconal position. We'll consider that when we talk about the orbit in greater detail. The third nerve, the ocular motor, enters the roof of the sinus anteriorly, medial to the ridge of the tentorium cerebelli, passes forwards in the lateral sinus wall, and it goes also to the superior orbital fissure, passing medially to the other nerves, that is, to the trochlear and trigeminal, where at the anterior end of the sinus it breaks into a superior and an inferior division, which enters the superior orbital fissure. Um, from lateral to medial, as we remember, that's lazy French tarts sit naked in anticipation, lacrimal, frontal, trochlear, superior division of the ocular motor, uh, nasociliary, inferior division of the ocular motor, and abducent. And as it runs forward, that is the third nerve, it picks up the sympathetics, which I've just mentioned, from the internal carotid nerve for uh, innovation uh, to the smooth muscle component of the labata palpebrae superioris muscle. Now, why that muscle needs both a visceral autonomic and a somatic supply, I don't know. Someone can enlighten me. The uh, trochlear nerve is very fragile and slender. It often gets torn in dissection as it enters the roof of the sinus behind the ocular motor along the tentorial ridge, coursing in the lateral sinus wall to enter the superior orbital fissure lateral to the ocular motor. The trigeminal ganglion lies forward in Meckel's cave with V3 running vertically downwards via the foramen ovale so that it's not in contact with the lateral sinus wall at all. V2, however, runs horizontally forwards to get to the foramen rotundum. V1 divides into its three branches at the anterior limit of the lateral sinus wall, the lacrimal and the frontal are extraconal laterally, the nasociliary nerves slopes downwards to enter the fibrous ring medially. And all of those three branches are crossed medially by the ocular motor. The V1 gives off uh, anteriorly some tentorial dural meningeal branches and it does pick up sympathetics from the internal carotid plexus destined for the dilator pupillae. Uh, I think a little bit of revision never hurt anyone. Finally, another way of looking at it is to say that in its course through the cavernous sinus, no nerve lies lateral to the trigeminal and its branches, and no nerve lies medial to the abducent. 
The trochlear nerve runs parallel with the trigeminal, although a little higher, with the ocular motor sloping downwards and medial to both. So it's just another way of looking at it. But Now it's accepted that blood can flow in the cavernous sinus in either direction, although it's customary to think of blood entering it from in front and leaving it from behind. And to reiterate, there's an extensive intercavernous communication which can be important in thrombosis. The entry points are, one, the superior ophthalmic vein which passes uh, to the cavernous sinus and the superior orbital fissure, two, the inferior orbital vein which enters at the front, but a lot of that blood will drain across the inferior orbital fissure to the pterygoid plexus. An emissary vein drains here, usually by the foramen ovale, although it can pass through a small foramen between the foramen ovale and the foramen spinosum, the so-called foramen of Vesalius. Um, if you want to know anything, by the way, about Andreas Vesalius, you can listen to the History of Anatomy podcasts, particularly uh, to Section 4. The third entry point to the cavernous sinus is the superficial middle cerebral vein. That's a vein we've already met, traversing the subarachnoid space and draining into the sinus, piercing its roof near the internal carotid artery. And the fourth is the sphenoparietal sinus, which drains blood from the bones over the temporal vault, the middle meningeal artery territory. And that runs in the free edge of the lesser wing of the sphenoid. The exit from the cavernous sinus is, one, the superior petrosal sinus, which I've discussed earlier. It leaves the top of the posterior sinus wall along the upper petrous temporal bone in the attached tentorium cerebelli, and it enters the commencement of the sigmoid sinus at the terminal transverse sinus. The sinus receives blood from the internal ear via several small veins that have separate foraminae in the petrous bone. The second exit point is the inferior petrosal sinus, also mentioned before, and that's larger than the superior petrosal sinus. It's the main exit of the cavernous sinus, leaving the posterior sinus wall beneath the petroclinoid ligament, which is a tough little fibrous band stretched between the apex of the petrous temporal bone and the side of the dorsum celli. And typically the, the abducent nerve lies just beneath that ligament, the inferior petrosal sinus runs alongside the side of the clivus, that's the suture really between the petrous and the occipital bones, leaving a well-marked groove on the dried skull. And it enters the anterior compartment of the jugular foramen, just medial to the glossopharyngeal nerve, and joins, as we've said before, a short distance below the base of the skull um, to form the internal jugular vein. So, in effect, the inferior petrosal sinus is regarded as the first or the highest tributary of the internal jugular vein? That's often a little trick question, as we've said before, but the first tributary which you might be asked of of the internal jugular vein is actually the, or the highest, is the inferior petrosal sinus. The third exit of the cavernous sinus is the communication with the pterygoid plexus via the foramen ovale and the sphenoidal emissary foramen, if present, and the fourth is a communication with the pharyngeal plexus via the carotid canal. Um, in effect, that's a communication really between the veins of the face and the cheek and the brain with the IJV. Now, final little comment should be made, I think, on the clinical significance of all this crowded anatomy, which is in cavernous sinus thrombosis. 
Thrombosis can extend to the hemisphere via the superficial middle cerebral vein. The so-called danger area of the face lies above the level of the deep facial vein, comprising really the upper lip and the nose, the medial part of the cheek, and that area is between the angular vein, which runs into the superior ophthalmic vein, that's the facial vein, and thence directly into the cavernous sinus, and the deep facial vein, which connects via the pterygoid plexus and thence into the cavernous sinus. So there's a couple of ways of superficial and deeper entry uh, into this. And such thrombosis usually results from deep facial sepsis in the nose or sometimes in the paranasal sinuses, the face or the teeth, or obviously in people who've got a hypercoagulability problem. And that produces an ophthalmoplegia because it affects the third nerve. So all the things we've said or, uh, about third nerve palsy, but there's also retrograde thrombosis, which can extend to the petrosal sinuses and then back to the medullary veins where it would prove fatal. The symptoms of cavernous sinus thrombosis, based on the anatomy we know then, would be ptosis, chemosis, uh, cranial nerve palsies, typically of the third, fourth, bits of the fifth and the sixth nerve. Sixth nerve palsy is actually the most common presentation of a cavernous sinus thrombosis. There will be sensory deficits of the ophthalmic and maxillary branch of the fifth nerve, and there will be periorbital sensory loss and impaired corneal reflex, papilledema and retinal hemorrhages with decreased visual acuity and blindness can occur from venous congestion within the retina. And of course, the systemic features of sepsis, fever, tachycardia, sepsis, headache with some degree of nuchal rigidity. And the pupil will be typically a bit dilated and sluggishly reactive. Um, I cover third nerve palsies. Um, uh, we've covered uh, palsies uh, before in an earlier podcast, but I, I will recover it again when we look at um, ocular movements in the orbital podcast. So you'll get a, a bit of repetition of these areas as reminders. Now the next area we wanted to talk about briefly are emissary veins. They're often neglected uh, veins which connect the venous sinuses with the veins outside the skull via either named or unnamed foramina. And they have no valves, which is of course important in the spread of infection uh, from the outside in. And they're variable. The parietal, condylar and sphenoidal emissary veins, uh, which have been described, may be absent. And they do equilibrate intracranial pressure and can theoretically act as a safety valve in cerebral congestion. Now, typically, the superior sagittal sinus is often connected to the veins of the scalp through a parietal emissary vein, which is commoner in humans uh, than in other mammals, and to the frontal sinus via the foramen cecum. The sigmoid sinus is connected to the occipital and or postauricular veins via the mastoid emissary vein and the vertebral venous plexus through the condylar canal via the condylar emissary vein. Posterior condylar emissary vein uh, connects the lower end of the sigmoid or occipital sinuses with the internal vertebral venous plexus and is part of the system connecting the sigmoid sinus with the suboccipital venous plexus and the suboccipital triangle. 
The mastoid emissary vein connects the transverse sinus to the posterior auricular vein or the occipital veins, which then join the vertebral venous plexus. And in some studies, the mastoid emissary vein is less common in women, although the reasons for that seem a little unclear. Connecting the transverse sinus to the occipital vein is the occipital emissary vein, and that can also drain to the confluence of sinuses. The cavernous sinus has the greatest number of connections, as we said before, via the superior ophthalmic veins to the facial vein, via the pharyngeal veins, through the foramen of Vali, or the so-called sphenoidal emissary foramen of Vesalius, uh, if it exists, and to the pterygoid plexus uh, therein. Others include um, a petrosquamous sinus connection or emissary vein, sometimes seen in primates. This can appear in humans, usually disappearing before birth. It's a small emissary vein which connects the junction of the transverse and sigmoid sinuses to the temporal bone. Uh, there are emissary veins of the foramen ovale uh, as well. As I mentioned, there's an anterior condylar emissary vein which can run uh, with the hypoglossal nerve. There may be a temporal emissary vein which can join the petrosquamosal sinus with a deep temporal vein, and that can be seen, as I've said, more commonly in lower-order mammals. Uh, there's a superficial petrosal emissary vein Sometimes vestigial remnants of this exist that joins the superficial petrosal veins in the middle cranial fossa with veins around the facial nerve in the stylomastoid foramen. Quite interesting. And there are also some very thin-walled meningeal veins which can lie alongside the skull against uh, the meninges, and these can end either in local venous sinuses or they can pass out um, into the scalp as true really unnamed emissary veins. And these emissary veins are all of great surgical relevance in surgical approaches where there's a risk of sinus injury or infection or if there's serious bleeding, sometimes if they're entered during an operation where there can be the risk of air embolism. The next area uh, to consider is the vertebral venous plexi. A few basic comments can be made here, although... These will be reinforced elsewhere. As part of the contents of the vertebral canal, the epidural space separates the periosteum of the vertebral canal from the spinal dura mater. It's in effect uh, really no different to the cranial extradural space, at least conceptually. The spinal epidural space is filled with loose areola tissue along with a network of veins and the small arteries supplying these vertebral canal structures. These veins here are the homologue really, of the venous sinuses of the dura mater, or at least they can be seen as corresponding to them. And these systems are therefore continuous with one another via the foramen magnum. The little spinal arteries at this level arise from the ascending cervical, that's a branch of the costocervical trunk, the second portion of the subclavian artery at the root of the neck, and the vertebral artery. Inferiorly, the lateral sacral, which comes from the internal iliac, is an important source. And these small arteries, at whatever level, enter via the intervertebral foramina and they supply the spinal medulla, as well as the adjacent nerve roots and the meninges, as well as being the relevant blood supply to the bones and the ligaments. The internal vertebral venous plexus extends through the length 
of the vertebral canal, and it's divisible into four subordinate longitudinal channels. There are two anterior and two posterior. The posterior plexi lie on the deep surface of the laminae and the ligamenta flava, and the anterior plexi are on the posterior surfaces of the vertebral bodies near the posterior longitudinal ligament. When we do the spinal cord and uh, uh, vertebral column in a much later podcast, we'll reinforce these areas. But both of these are on the back of the vertebrae, but one is just more anterior to the other. Um, these have extensive communications across the laminae and receive veins from the bones and the contents of the vertebral canal, including the bassy vertebral veins from the back of each vertebral body. Via the intervertebral foramina, there are communications <coughs> with the body wall veins, the vertebral, the posterior and costals, the lumbars and the lateral sacral veins, depending on what level you're at. And this valveless system therefore communicates with the inferior vena cava via the lateral sacral and lumbar veins and with the superior vena cava via the posterior intercostals and vertebral veins. And it's believed to be the mechanism of neoplastic embolisation to the bones, for example, in prostate cancer. So in summary, the rich red marrow of the vertebral bodies drains by a pair of large bassy vertebral veins into this internal vertebral venous plexus. Drainage of the neural arch and of the attached muscles is via the external vertebral venous plexus, which is almost non-existent over the bare fronts of the vertebral bodies. And the internal and the external vertebral venous plexi then drain into the regional segmental veins. So depending on where you are, the vertebral, the posterior intercostal, the lumbar, the lateral sacral, as I've already mentioned, I'm just reinforcing it. And this system allows really communication in the pelvis with the pelvic viscera, in the abdomen with the left renal vein, in the thorax with the veins of the breast, and in the neck with the inferior thyroid veins. All of these are communicated depending on what level. In the latter case, that explains obviously the spread to the bones of thyroid cancers. But also there's a mechanism for osseous metastases in breast cancer and in uterine cancer. And I guess one added point is that the internal vertebral venous plexus has some trabeculations and separations which are similar to the dural venous sinuses of the skull and which may serve to prevent venous over-distension or collapse, maybe to regulate the direction and the velocity of blood flow, or possibly uh, could be involved in thermoregulation or other homeostatic processes. Now, I want to finish... Um, this podcast just mentioning a little bit about the basic CSF dynamics. It's of critical importance in states of raised intracranial pressure, such as hydrocephalus, brain tumours, head injury, benign intracranial hypertension and post-CVA. So we've got to understand a little bit about the anatomy of the system, which explains its physiology and its pathophysiology. The traditional view is that the CSF drains from the subarachnoid space through the arachnoid villi into the superior sagittal sinus. But there's also some, clearly some, lymphatic drainage of the CSF as well. CSF also serves as a protective fluid to the brain and spinal cord, cushioning them from mechanical injury. And it acts to reduce the brain's effective weight. Its actual mass is about 1,500 grams, whilst the buoyancy provided by the CSF reduces its net weight to something more like 25 to 50 grams. 
and it serves as a critical mechanism also for transporting nutrients and hormones from one area to another, as well as in protein clearance. So there's a number of effects of CSF. It's estimated that around 80 to 90% of CSF is secreted by the choroid plexus, a highly vascularized structure of epithelial cells located in the ventricles of the brain. The epithelial cells surrounding the capillaries compose a blood CSF barrier which selectively controls the movement of solutes and water to regulate the composition of CSF. Under normal physiological conditions, the total volume of human CSF is between about 150 to 160 mils. And the problem here is that CSF production is virtually constant and the so-called Munro-Kelly doctrine basically states that the cerebral volume um, is made up of the cerebral water content or cerebral uh, blood volume and flow, the cerebral weight and the CSF volume. And all of that combined needs to be constant. Now, as an aside, but which is clinically very relevant, the unfortunate pressure-volume relationship within the fixed cranial cavity is such that at the end of the relationship, the pressure goes up exponentially with very, very small increases in volume. So that it's relatively stable for quite a prolonged period of time. And then this control mechanism basically gives out. And the system at the end becomes, in a sense, exhausted. And what happens there is that cerebral perfusion, this is in brain death, basically stops. And if we think of it, the cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to the mean arterial blood pressure minus the intracranial pressure. So when the intracranial pressure starts becoming massive, almost approaching, obviously, the mean arterial blood pressure, then cerebral perfusion pressure drops to nothing. In other words, there's no cerebral blood flow. And it was a very old way of assessing brain death. People had cerebral angiography, and it showed that the carotid stopped basically at the jaw. There was no cerebral blood flow. Um, and this has to do with the understanding of the anatomy of the CSF and its physiology. Because CSF secretion is virtually constant, and because there is a Munro-Kelly doctrine which combines cerebral water content, cerebral weight and CSF volume to a static level because the brain is sitting in a hard box, then it means there's very little give in the system. And particularly, although it's auto-regulated, at moderate volumes, then when the ICF become, or CSF pressure, ICP, intracranial pressure becomes so high, then very small changes in volume produce almost exponential increases in the ICP once that system is given out. And that's how brain death basically occurs. So it's understanding the anatomy allows us to understand the physiology of CSF dynamics and then its pathophysiology. Further evidence, I think, includes experiments by Welsh and others which demonstrated a higher hematocrit in the main choroidal vein when compared to the main choroidal artery. And these results implied that the CSF was important in the movement of fluids and solutes. Um, I don't think we'll go into some of the details people can look at uh, as the ultrastructure of the choroid plexus epithelial cells. There's some electron microscopic data, uh, and this shows the cells that resemble typical secretory cells 
with the presence of a brush border at the apical membrane facing the ventricle, infoldings at the basolateral membrane, a high density of mitochondria, well-developed endoplasmic reticulum. And these mean, this means that these cells are important for fluid transport across the blood-brain barrier, uh, which contributes to about the remaining 10 to 20% of CSF secretion beyond uh, the choroid plexus. Um, control of CSF secretion, there's some, as we know, involvement of the carbonic anhydrase system, which has been targeted therapeutically in the treatment of hydrocephalus and uh, uh, with the use of acetazolamide. I don't think we need to go there. The classic perception of CSF drainage dates back to the 18th century, and it's based on the anatomical observations of structures composed of arachnoid cells appropriately named arachnoid granulations, which are the macroscopic one, and arachnoid villi, which are the microscopic ones. And these structures project from the subarachnoid space to the venous sinus within the dura, and they rely on hydrostatic pressure as the driving force for CSF movement. The spinal canal and cerebral lymphatic drainage also are implicated in this system, so it's a little bit more complex uh, than um, just these. And those mechanisms, the latter ones that I've described, have to be of uh, some degree of importance since the arachnoid villi only appear after birth. Um, I think besides being involved in CSF production, the layers of the choroid plexus, of course, form a selectively permeable barrier, the blood-brain barrier. And uh, to recap from superficial to deep, the blood-brain barrier consists of the choroid ependymal cells and their tight cellular junctions, the pia mater, the endothelial cells of capillaries, and the basal membrane of endothelial capillary cells. The function of the blood-brain barrier is the control of the movement of water and solutes into the CSF, as well as uh, from the CSF into neural tissue. There's also a blood CSF barrier, as we know, which is part of the blood-brain barrier, and that's really the tight junctions between the choroid ependymal cells controlling the passage of uh, various molecules between the underlying capillaries and the CSF, where electrolytes and blood cells pass through the fenestry of these capillaries. They enter the CSF um, and, uh, uh, and then move on. And this is also uh, affecting the passage of the movement of larger uh, drug molecules. So as I've said, just briefly reiterating again, the CSF is constantly produced at a secretion rate of 0.2 to 0.7 mil per minute. That's an unfortunate feature of the system, which can obviously cause problems when uh, changes in intracranial pressure are at that exponential phase. But it means that there's about 600 or so to 700 mils of newly produced CSF every day. And since the total volume of CSF averages around about 150 to 270 mils or so, that means that the entire volume of the CSF is going to be replaced about four times daily. The pathways we remember as CSF is that it passes from the lateral ventricles to the third ventricle through the interventricular foramen of Munro, and then from the third ventricle it flows out through the cerebral aqueduct of Silvius to the fourth ventricle. From the fourth ventricle, some CSF flows through a narrow passage, which is called the obex, 
and that enters the central canal of the spinal cord. That's obviously a very small amount. But the majority of it passes through the apertures of the fourth ventricle. The median one, we remember, is the uh, foramen of Majondi, a rather um, uh, unpleasant uh, French anatomist of the 19th century, and two lateral apertures, the foramen of Lushka. Via these uh, openings, the CF CSF then enters the cisterna magna and the cerebellopontine cisterns, respectively, and is finally reabsorbed into the dural venous sinuses uh, through these arachnoid granulations. Um, okay, so we've completed this podcast and we're on to the next one, uh, which is AHN 10. It's going to be on the orbit. See you then. <laughs>